Welcome to another edition of the Litigation Psychology Podcast brought to you by Courtroom Sciences, Inc. I am Steve Wood, and today's topic is going to be something of interest. You know, as, as individuals, as professionals, we have to look for motivation from outside other sources, and that might be athletes, movies, you know, directors, and in some instances, it could be hip-hop artists. Now, today, to talk to me about his inspiration from a hip-hop artist is Brent Terman. Brent, how the heck are you? Good to see you again. Doing, doing great. Thank you for having me back, Steve. Looking forward to this today. Sure, yeah. So today, I brought you on because you have found some inspiration in a, let's just say, less than normal spot for someone who is an attorney. Normally, you would think... But uh, you found some inspiration from Kanye West. And yes, we're talking the Kanye West, the rapper. So when you had talked to me before about wanting to come on and talk about where you got your inspiration from that, I was, I was a little taken aback because I thought, hey, Brent, this, this isn't a hip hop show. You know, you're going to have to sell me on this and how you it is that you pull motivation from Kanye. But once I heard, heard you, I, I thought, you know, there's, there's something here. So you do this normally as a presentation, more of a CLE for other organizations, but we're kind of doing a more of a condensed version where we're going to hit many of the highlights that you do of your presentation. So can you just talk to the audience initially and, you know, give us a little bit more of insight about how you draw inspiration from Kanye West? Well, definitely. Thank you again. My name is Brent Terman. I am a partner and a trial attorney at the law firm of Bell Nunley Martin here based in Dallas, Texas. And yes, this is a presentation I've been taking around the country to bar associations and then also litigation sections for larger firms. And once all of my in-person presentations turned into virtual, I created my little corner here upstairs at my house as my presentation center. And I've got my, my son's artwork up there. It's a masterpiece, right? But uh, yes. presentation's a lot of fun. Um, and really, it's a vehicle for me to tell war stories and teach trial skills. But through the very unique, uh, polarizing at times, inspiration of Kanye West. So the presentation, how it goes, we're not going to cover it all today, is we have, uh, we kind of go through Kanye's life growing up album to album. And, and we see, we learn a lot of things from Kanye's actions, both the, the good things and the, the not so good things that he does, right? Yeah. And so with that, we have takeaways that we can learn not only as litigators, but also as trial attorneys and specific techniques and things like that. So we can just kind of talk about some of the highlights here and some of my favorites. And, and I'm glad you joined today. Thank you again, Steve. Yeah, sure. So let's talk about the first one that, that you wanted to bring up. Right. So the first one is finding your own voice. And for those of you who aren't hip hop fans, we're going to be brief, but just give you a little backstory for Kanye West. Um, he had a very, he didn't apologize for it, a middle class upbringing, and he was not your stereotypical rapper. Around the time his first album dropped, 50 Cent was the biggest artist, and he's exposing his, his muscles and stuff on covers. He's rapping about committing crimes and getting shot several times. Kanye knows he is not 50 Cent. He wears pink polos. He wears backpacks. and like, not the cool way, not with one strap. Like he's got both straps right. on and he worked at the Gap, right? And he raps about it. He's true to himself and who he is. And he created this very unique sound in the presentation. We dissect it and, and how he uh, modifies samples, things of that nature. Um, but it's a very unique sound, something never heard. And he is true to himself. He has found his voice. And as litigators, that's what we need to do. Now, Steve, I know you help people all across the country. For those, of, those who don't live in the Texas area, you may not know there's this guy. He's on TV and everywhere he goes on his commercials, there's 18 wheelers exploding behind him. And he's the tough, smart lawyer. And yeah. he's aggressive. You know exactly what I'm talking oh, about. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And what he does works for him 
unquestionably. He is a tremendous business person and marketer. But just because you're a lawyer doesn't mean you have to act like the tough, smart lawyer, right? You don't have to pound the table and act like someone you've seen in a legal drama if that doesn't fit your personality. So find out who you are and be true to that because if you're pretending to be someone else, first off, you know it, right? And if you know it, you better, you better bet someone on the jury is going to realize it too. You can't fake, fake out 12 people when you're not being yourself. And it's not just oral advocacy, it's writing too. So we talked last time about the 50 Shades of Grey case, how we did the storytelling and the three-act structure and, the open, and our whole presentation of the case. One thing I loved about the petition that case, working with Mike Ferris, who was an author slash um, attorney, now a full-time author after that case hit. And, and he told me, Brent, here's what I want to do with this petition. We're going to draft it in a clean, clear, and straightforward manner. We're not going to include legalese. We're not going to overcomplicate it just for the heck of it or to, to make ourselves feel smarter or fancy, right? I want to have a very clean, straightforward petition so that someone, I don't know, maybe a journalist with no legal background can read that petition, not have to ask anyone any questions or Google anything and write an article about it, but on the front page of the paper. And that's exactly what happened. So just because things were done a certain way doesn't mean you have to do them. It's important to find your own voice. Yeah, I think that's a great point because we talk, you know, just with, with attorneys and we've talked on the podcast before about, you know, tips and tricks for young lawyers and that. And a lot of times it does come up about find your personality, find who you are and then see how it fits. And I think it's a good point you also bring up about not being a table pounder. Because when I work with a lot of witnesses, you know, the first question is always, well, what's the attorney like? Is he a table pounder? Is he a nice guy? Is he aggressive? Mm -hmm. How is it that he approaches it? And like you said, those are things that are developed over the years that people have found work for them. And the same thing for witnesses. I tell witnesses as well when working with them is here's kind of the structure of the way you need to answer the question. But at the end of the day, you should answer the question in what's natural to you, right? Within the parameters of don't step in it when you're talking about, you know, topics and say something harmful to the case, but use it in your terms and your, your language so that you do look comfortable and that you do sound genuine. So I think that's a very good point. Yes. I love that because for example, we had a case with a patent dispute and we had people who worked on the oil field in Midland, Texas. We don't want something coming out of their mouth to sound like it's something I or someone else told me yeah. to say. speak the way you feel comfortable. I love it. That's great. Great. Okay. The second one you had that you wanted to talk about this, this was, you referred to as listen, right? Yes, and it sounds like, duh, Brent, of course you need to listen. But there's a lot of traps you can fall into. So first, let's go back to Kanye. Mm-hmm. Uh, his first album had a very unique sound. Again, we're not going to dissect that today, but it's called Chipmunk Soul. It's really interesting how he created his sounds. Now, he had his first album, best album of the year at the Grammys for rap. And um, everyone noticed, and everyone thought, I, I want to do that same thing. So he- if he listened to what's going on and heard, everything out there now is sounding like Kanye West and his first album. So you had two choices, right? First, do the same thing. You know what? I'm Kanye, I'm the best. He'd, he'd probably tell us that, right? Mm-hmm. Kanye, I'm the best, but now I got firepower. I got ammunition. I got label money behind me. I can do it better than anyone else. Or he can listen and think, what do I want to do next? I was successful because my sound was unique. So I'm going to take this path instead and do something different that has not traditionally been done in the genre. And it's pretty hilarious when you find out what he did in his second album. He created, he used real instruments. That was the groundbreaking thing he did. It wasn't just saying- How dare he? Yeah, it's crazy, right? Yeah. He had uh, horns, uh, strings, instrumentations, things like that. So he really listened there and adjusted. 
Now, obviously, there's different situations where you always want to listen, but I'm going to give a few that were very interesting for me and important. Um, so first is when you're deposing someone, you're going to create an outline, bullet point list, something. Uh, you're talking about long, young lawyers earlier. A uh, big pitfall there is they create an outline, and that outline is their Bible. Right. What do I ask next? Well, I'm going to look down the sheet of paper, and it's going to tell me, and that's it, because that's what's in my outline. That's so dangerous. I'm going to give you an example. We had a case a couple years ago. It was another patent litigation suit. Uh, pending in the Western District of Texas. And we were uh, deposing CEO, president, some, some officer uh, from the plaintiff. We're asking questions about their business arrangements, business dealings. And he's answering the questions, but just reading body language. You can tell, he's not telling the full story, right? So do we just go on to the next question or outline? Could have done that. But we start probing a little deeper, asking you know additional questions, going down different rabbit holes. And lo and behold, we find out something really important. We find out that he actually assigned, his company assigned the patents in suit during the litigation. Now, why is that? That's important because that, that just destroyed a large portion of the damages model. You don't get futures on that, right? right? Yeah. So if we would have stayed on outline, we would have never known that. Also, if they would have complied with their discovery requirements, we would have known that already. But that doesn't always happen in cases. Now, it's not just when you are dealing with the hostile or adverse witness or the other party. It's your own client as well. Um, we had a case, a federal case in the Eastern District of Texas where I was preparing our, uh, our, our main corporate rep for testimonies. He, he'd been deposed before, never testified in a case, definitely in front of jurors, right? And so we're practicing the night before and man, we're on the same wavelength, man. I know where he's going, he knows where I'm going, we're on the same page. He gets up on the stand the next day and he gets, gets the jitters, right? And he's answering the questions differently than he did the night before. He's being honest, he's telling the truth, but here's the problem. The way he's answering questions did not allow us to tell our most persuasive story. So what I do, I can't just move on to the next question I direct that he just nailed the night before. I've got to listen to what he said, readjust and bring him back to where we need to go to tell our most persuasive story to the jury. That's excellent. And I think it goes to show that attorneys are very good listeners. And once again, to go back, this is what I talk about witnesses with is that, when they're giving responses, they need to be short and concise with their responses and not give these long rambling answers. Because as you said, you guys are very good at listening. And even if you're looking mm -hmm. down and you're writing, you're writing, you're writing, it looks like you're not paying attention. You're paying attention. And if someone says something, you know, more than what they needed to, then they're going to open doors, like you said, and go down rabbit holes. So I think, like you said, yeah. listening. Because I love when you have those oversharing deponents. <laughs> right. The follow-up question you can just kind of lean in and have an awkward pause and see if they want to fill the space with more information than their attorney wants them to say it's great it's great exactly and uh my my recommendation for witnesses is don't do that don't fall for <laughs> brent's long pause don't do it well, <laughs> do, do it if i'm in the case but yeah but right. yeah all right so number three so we have find your voice listen what's number three number three is use the right strategy this is important when you're communicating with people uh, so the, the going back to Kanye's life, he's second album was successful and he's going in between the second and third album. He goes on this monster tour opening for you too. He's at these crazy football stadiums and arenas, massive crowds. First thought is I bet you a bunch of YouTube fans did not sign up to see Kanye run around a stage and rap, but, but they got that. And he got a lot from that experience. He'd never played in venues before like that. And he'd never really, I don't think examined and studied uh, acts in different genres like you too. So one thing he loved that Bono would do is 
um, that had these songs with um, kind of sparse lyrics in the chorus, the bridge or wherever. And then have kind of a call response where Bono sings something that holds out his mic to the crowd and they scream it back. And Kanye was like, this is amazing. We had this interactive experience you can't get anywhere else other than in person, right? Uh, and, and so he really took that and his next album structured his communications to his audience different. He structured them to where there were less words. It was less verbose. And it wasn't just less words, but it was strategic. He'd make sure these phrases right before those breaks were um, very, they weren't complicated phrases. They were easy words to remember and repeat. Uh, and really he was thoughtful about how he communicated with his audience. And we need to do that as attorneys too. Um, for example, when we parachute in and get on a case maybe a couple months before trial, ready to get it going, first thing I wanna know is, is this a trial by court with the judge or is this a jury trial? You are very, very aware of this and how important that is, right? So if you have a judge, he or she will have attended law school, if you're not in JP court, right? Uh, attended law school, they'll know the common elements of causes of action or affirmative defenses. Uh, most of the time, that happen all the time, but for the most part, you're going to have a legally educated person making these decisions as a fact finder. Um, now it's a little different sometimes with a jury. Depending on where you are, you may have a pretty educated jury, and um, but most of the time they won't be legally educated. They will not be lawyers. Now there's an exception there. I had another case up in the Eastern District in Texas, Arcana, where I intentionally did not strike an attorney um, who ended up being the foreperson. Shocker, right? That happens yeah. a lot of the time. And the reason why I wanted to keep him on the panel, at least alive, if the other side didn't strike him, was he had a background in tax law. And I knew that he was going to destroy the other side when it came to their damages. Again, we're on the defense side in that case. And I talked to him after the case. And he's like, well, I saw it two ways. You know, we either were going to find that your client was not liable, which is what happened. Uh, but then he said, even if we did find your client liable, the other side didn't meet their burden when it comes to damages. So, you know, that was how we were going to decide. So I digress. Back to the point. Generally, your jurors are not going to have a legal background, legal education. So you need to simplify things for them. Right. And I think. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. ahead. One thing I did not say is dumb it down for them. Go ahead. I think that's that's an important point that that we we talked about the other day when I was talking about uh, intellectual property cases is Mm -hmm. that especially those cases, as you brought up is that those are the cases where you really don't want to dumb them down. And, and when you do, jurors will realize that you're dumbing it down and, and actually get angry at you because then they think that you're talking down to them or that somehow you don't think that they're intelligent enough to be able to follow what you're saying. Exactly. And I, think- and I, can, I can give you an example of when that happened, in my opinion, if you want to hear it. Yeah. So we're in that case, again, in Texarkana, an opposing counsel is in his opening statement, his opening presentation. And the point he's trying to get across is that my client did not call his client back. That's it. So he's up there and goes, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, my client called defendant over there across the room several times over several weeks. Do you know what that response was? Clicks the next slide. Crickets. And then there's this just cheesy, cheesy clip art of a cricket. And in my opinion, that did not resonate. He got his, he got this point across, right? Yeah. I thought he was treating them like elementary students. Uh, I think, the jury the respect they deserved and it didn't resonate again i'm biased i'm on the other side right but that's just how it played out in my mind well i think that goes to one of the reasons why you know we conduct mock trials and focus groups and that is because you need to know your correct strategy and there's a lot of times when we go in 
we see that a lot of attorneys believe that these certain points are going to be the strongest pieces of evidence that they're going to focus a lot on throughout the case. And then they find out when talking to the jury that those are not even things that are really even considered at all. Right. And that's these other pieces that they latched onto that end up being the linchpins of the case that you wouldn't have known, but for doing these mock trials. And if you didn't do it or didn't have a sense for kind of what the jury thinks and what the jury is latching onto or buying into or what their thought processes are, then you could very well go in there and put up a, a PowerPoint presentation of a cricket, you know, and then had you done some, any sort of research, you probably would have found out exactly what you said that people would have rolled their eyes at it and said, come on, man, you know, this, you're treating us like children here. And like you said, so using the right strategy, I think is very important because you don't want to find out after the fact you use the wrong strategy, right? I don't think that attorney wants to know after the fact that jurors felt talked down to once they saw that cricket slide. So that's, that's after the fact and it's way too late. So. And what you say about um, mock trials and, and, and juries and things, I love it. So we had a case several, several years ago where uh, we were pushing hard for fraud and punitives. We thought defendant was a bad, bad woman. Um, and I still believe that today, but in the mock trial, the juror is an abbreviated mock trial. They did not agree with us. You know, they gave her kind of the benefit of the doubt, which you know, for better or worse, it really helped us to modify our strategy and going forward to focus less on going after punitives because it really hurt our credibility with the jurors, even though, again, I believe to this day they were warranted, but you still want to make, you know, the most persuasive presentation for your client. Excellent. All right. Wrap us up with number four. What, what do you got for number four? Number four is push the envelope. So later in Kanye's years, uh, his career, there's this divergence. So at the beginning, he was loved by the masses, uh, the mainstream, super popular, right? And the critics, whatever, he's a pop artist, he's a rapper. There's this point where that foot flops and the critics love him, but the mainstream, not as much. And that's where Kanye is trying to become an artist. In his mind, a capital A artist. We're talking fine art. He's, he's delving into fashion and all kinds of design and things like that. And he makes this album, because Kanye is polarizing, right? Yeah, say, say the least, yeah. This album was called Yeezus. So he's just feeding into it. Yeah. And he made uh, music that he, in his own words, wanted to make challenging for his audience. Now, that's not the takeaway. We do not want to do that in the case. But he wanted to do that because he wanted to be seen as an artist. And he created, not created, this, this could be categorized a genre. Of, I've heard it called gothic rap, which is rap lyrics, lots of heavy electronic noises, modulated screaming, things like that. Again, not for the mainstream. What he was doing there was for a reason, pushing the envelope. And that's really, we need to push the envelope, push the limits to advocate for our clients. Uh, and I want to tell you just one way I did that, that I was kind of surprised where it really set the tone going forward for a case. And it was late in the case, admittedly, where I am a, had a very long direct examination with an expert witness, several hours. We were getting all into the minutia, dollars and cents, all these very technical things, right? Some people, it's boring. There's other things I did liven it up. We don't have time to talk about them today, but I did other things to liven up the presentation. But I noticed about an hour and a half into that presentation, opposing counsel looks like he's ready to go to sleep. You know, we're obviously late into a trial. It's after lunch. He's looking sleepy. And this is, again, something that's not my outline, but I thought, I'm just going to try this and see if, you know, the judge or the other side slaps my hand. We'll see what happens. So I said, and we got the expert up there, Dr. So-and-so, did you read all the transcripts in this case? Yes, sir, I did. So you read plaintiff's corporate representative's transcript, correct? Yes, sir, I did. Okay, well, I'm going to read you a couple lines from that examination. Then I have a question for you. 
Okay, just wait one second. So I get the sheet of paper, I put it up on the Elmo. We're in the old school Elmo there. Yeah. And I read what I have, what I found, what I believe is the most damning admission anyone's made in the case. And I read through it slowly. It's like six lines. I'm highlighting it on the Elmo on a clean white sheet of paper. So I read them. And then here's my amazing question. You ready? Did I read that correctly? Yes, sir, you did. Okay, fold it up, put it over there, move on. And so I'm thinking this whole time, opposing counsel, whether for a strategic reason or not, just allowed me to read hearsay into the record. So we get to break and I whisper my paralegal, I'll say, pull this, pull this other expert real quick and I'll put it up there. So then, did you read, I don't know, this other employee's deposition transcript? Yes, sir, I did. Same song and dance. Slowly read them, not dramatically, but slowly to make yeah. sure can read them all, highlight them, they can see it. And then the same question, did I read that correctly? Yes, sir, you did. That's it, put it away. Pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered. Didn't want to push it anymore. But the point is here, here's, here's what I did. I got unquestionable record. The jury heard me read it. They saw it on the screen highlighted and moved slowly. So they thought they were really supposed to pay more attention to it. Mm. I heard my expert up there. You know, the court said he's an expert. He's also confirmed that all these things were said. Uh, and, and so that was really something that was fun because opposing counsel didn't object. You know, if something's objectionable, that's fine. But if no one objects, it's in the record. Jury yeah. can see it. No, so I like that. Uh, way to push the limit. Yeah, I, lo I love that because I've had conversations before and we've had other podcasts where we talk about how the defense bar is not quite caught up to the aggressiveness of the plaintiff bar and mm -hmm. that really the plaintiff bar is always trying to push it right up to that proverbial line. And then sometimes they'll even step over, but the defense is a lot more conservative and doesn't want to get to that point for fear of pissing off the jury or making the judge mad or looking bad or anything like that. But, you know, the idea is that sometimes you have to fight fire with fire. And a lot of these attorneys are coming out, these plaintiff attorneys, are going to come out of COVID and I've heard them talk already. They're going to come out swinging and they're going to oh, yeah. come out. They're going to come out, not taking settlements. They're going to come out pushing the limit. They're going to come out, like you said, trying to, to go for the big wins and the defense needs to be able to make sure that they step up and use the same approach and push it to the limit as well. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, that's a perfect thought to have. And I wish more defense bar attorneys would have that approach that you have. I mean, Bill, Dr. Kanaski and I, who, you know, on the podcast often as well. We've been talking about that and harping on that about, you know, these defense attorneys just need to get more aggressive. You need to get more aggressive. And like you said, push it to the limit. So that's great. And you know, too, but it's important to test those limits early in a trial too, because then you can really adjust your approach going forward for the ne next, how many days or weeks you're going to be in the courtroom. Exactly. Yeah. All right, Brent. Well, I, I love talking to you, man. I wish I, I wish I had more time to go through your presentation, but you do have this as a more formal presentation, right? That is CLE accredited that you give to organizations. Oh, definitely. All across the country and the same for litigation sections at law firms. And we make sure, depending on the state that we have, we've had states give up to half an hour of ethics credit as well, because we know that's hard to come by. Okay. So if someone wanted to get a hold of you to talk to you more about getting this CLE or just having questions for you, how do they get a hold of you? Definitely. I'm available at bterman at bellnunnally.com. Again, my law firm I work with and my partner at is Bell Nunnally and Martin in Dallas, Texas. And I'm also you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm on the Clubhouse app, uh, having fun every now and then. So you know where to find me. All right. Gracie. And if you need anything from me, I can be found at swood at Courtroom Sciences. Our website's courtroomsciences.com. 
This has another, been another edition of the Litigation Psychology Podcast. Once again, Brent, thanks for being on, and uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks, Steve. Have a good one.